Section 17 of The Diary of a Country Parson by James Woodford. Read by John Greenman. With Latin help from Kazbek and Greek help from Kyriakos Marquidis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 1775. January 2nd. I got up this morning between five and seven, breakfast in my rooms upon cocoa, and afterwards went to the Cross Inn in the corn market where I got into the bath machine to go into the West Country. Dr. Wall breakfasted with me and went with me in the bath machine, it being a frost so far as Burford. Mr. Fisher of University College went with us in the machine, as did one Sally Kirby, a servant-maid of one Mrs. Horwood of Holton near Ansford, who is now at Bath and bad in the gout. We stayed at Whitney and made a second breakfast, we treated the maid at Whitney. I paid one shilling sixpence, gave the porter at the Cross Inn, Oxford, one shilling. We then went on to Burford, where we stayed to change horses. Dr. Wall left us at Burford and went to his brother's in the chaise, about thirteen miles from Burford. We took up another servant-maid at Whitney, who went with us to Sirenchester. Mr. Fisher, myself, and Mrs. Horwood's maid all go to Bath together. We dined at Bybury, and we treated the two maids. Fisher and myself paid at Bybury four shillings sixpence. We got to Sirenchester about six o'clock, where we supped and slept at the bull there. The two maids supped and spent the evening with us. Fisher and myself went to an auction of books this evening at Sirenchester, the auctioneer very saucy. I met with Brother Small, Freemason, at the auction. Fisher and myself treated the two maids paid six shillings apiece this evening, as we might not be hindered to-morrow. He stops a night in Bath, and therefore does not reach Ansford till the 4th. He remains at Ansford till February 1st. Nothing very eventful happens. He is much pleased with Brother John's newly-wed wife, though Brother John himself continues to cause him anxiety on account of his rather excessive regard for the bottle. Squire Creed, the younger, dies and there is a great funeral at which the diarist was a principal mourner. The mourners had only satin hatbands and gloves. Still, it was a handsome funeral and church full. The diarist is a little disappointed in the will, as no mention is made of the Ansford estate which his, the diarist's Aunt Collins, had left away from her family by giving it to Squire Creed, and which the latter had promised should revert to her family again. He finds a new sort of social club started in Cary, the gentlemen and the ladies meeting separately at each other's houses every Thursday. There is the usual constant round of mutual visiting and entertainment, which is so marked and pleasant a feature of country life at this period. On January 28th he rides over to Shepton Mallet and calls on Mr. White at Shepton, but Betsy White was not at home, she being in Devonshire, at Mr. Troit's and is to remain there till Easter, was told. Of the unfortunate results of this Devonshire visit of Betsy's, unfortunate for our faithful diarist, we shall hear anon. February 1st. I breakfast and dined at Parsonage, and at one o'clock set off for Oxford, in Ansford Inn chaise. Gave a boy from Bruton for bringing a hare, one shilling, which I carried with me, sent by Mr. Macy to Mr. P., I left all our folks rather low on my going away. I put up at the Angel in Westgate Street Bath, where I supped and slept. 
i met mr parfitt of wells the bishop's secretary at my inn at bath and he supped and spent the evening with me he told me that i should have my testimonium as soon as possible it is now with the bishop at london n b the bath coach for to-morrow for oxford quite full so that i forfeit my half-guinea that i paid some time back and must go to oxford some other way as i did not come last week however i met with a young gentleman from devon at my inn who is going to oxford by name coleridge of ottery st mary and we agreed to take a chaise to-morrow between us for oxford so far so good he is of christchurch college on the students list and dr kennicott there is his great friend he spent the evening with us at the angel inn next day the diarist and mr coleridge proceed to oxford which they reach between seven and eight o'clock changing horses four times at the crosshands tetbury bybury and whitney the whole cost us apiece about one pound fourteen shillings sixpence the hair that i brought with me i gave the warden the mr coleridge who thus travelled to oxford with the diarist was william coleridge one of the eight brothers of the celebrated samuel who at this date was not three years old william himself was born on march eighth seventeen fifty eight his father was the rev john coleridge vicar of ottery st mary william matriculated at christ church as servitor on june third seventeen seventy four and was admitted as scholar at wadham september thirtieth seventeen seventy seven he took his b a degree in seventeen seventy nine and his m a in the following year before the close of which he died shortly before his death he had been ordained he was an excellent scholar and apparently drudged like an emmet at oxford lord coleridge says he took life seriously he would not have the buckles brother james the soldier sent him and took the lace off his best shirt so as not to appear informally or uncanonically note the story of a devonshire house pages fifty two to fifty four by lord coleridge k c foster's alums oxoniensis his great friend dr kennicott was the foremost hebrew biblical scholar of his time and was an old friend of his father the vicar of ottery st mary who may also be called the founder of the very distinguished house of coleridge february seventh sent a letter this afternoon to my curate mr howes of my living of waston in norfolk had a letter this evening from mr peddle of sussex concerning his name being in the black book he was very submissive and penitent in this last february seventeenth mr peddle gentcom st mary hall whose name is in the black book put in by me in july last waited on me this morning to desire me to take his name out of the same which i promised to do upon his bringing me a declaration on nemo omnibus horisapit and asking pardon of highway of balliol february twentieth mr peddle brought me his declamation this morning i went to highway of balliol about him and he is satisfied therefore this afternoon i sent to the senior proctor for the black book and erased his name and put satisfacit february twenty eighth i supped and spent the evening at brasenose college with brother wood we supped in the hall and spent the evening in the senior common room it being shrove tuesday we had lamb's wool to drink a composition of ale sugar etc lobsters pancakes etc to eat at supper 
and the butler there gives a plum-cake with a copy of verses of his own making upon it. March 13th. At half-past eleven this morning went with Cook to see George Strop hanged. Note. A shoemaker, an hardened villain, who murdered his master at Bister. Entry under March 10th who was hung about a quarter before one o'clock near the castle. He confessed, just as he came out of the castle, the crime for which he suffered, but not before. He pulled up his cap two or three times to delay. A Methodist prayed by him in the cart for some time under the gallows. He seemed foolhardy. It is said that he declared yesterday if he had only his liberty for one quarter of an hour he would employ it in murdering of his wife. I think I never saw such sullenness and villainy in one face. Jack Ketch kissed him twice before he went off. His body was carried to Dr. Parsons to be dissected and anatomized pursuant to the sentence. I do believe that there were more than six thousand spectators present when he was hanged. I took to two gentlemen there for wearing different capes to their coats than the coats whereof. On April ninth, he enters that he is very busy packing up for my Norfolk expedition, an expedition to take possession of his living at Weston. This is a temporary visit, as he does not go into residence till over a year later. April tenth, I breakfast in my room this morning at seven o'clock upon some chocolate, as did Cook with me. After breakfast, about eight o'clock, I set off in Jones post coach for the city of London. Cook went with me in the same, and I promised to frank him all the way to Norfolk, as he goes to oblige me. Mrs. Prince and Osborne White of our college went with us to London in the machine or post-chaise. We all dined together at Maidenhead Bridge, and then proceeded on to London. For Cook and myself at Maidenhead paid eight shillings. For the remaining fare for Cook and myself paid fifteen shillings. We got to London about six o'clock. Cook and myself then took a hackney coach and went to the Turk's Head Coffee House in the Strand, opposite Catherine Street, kept by one Mrs. Smith, a widow and a good motherly kind of a woman, her person, and talking, very much like Mrs. Carr of Twickenham, and there we supped and slept. To the Oxford coachman gave two shillings, for an hackney coach to the Turk's Head paid three shillings. We went in the evening to Mr. Burns in Duke Street, Westminster, secretary to the Bishop of Norwich, to leave my papers with him and to desire the Bishop to give me institution to-morrow, but he told me that he thought the Bishop would not so soon. Trenchard and Lovell, late of the university, supped and spent the evening with us at the Turk's Head. Mrs. Prince was a very agreeable and merry traveller. April 11th. We breakfast, dined, supped, and slept again at the Turk's Head Coffee House. At eleven o'clock this morning I went in my gown, in an hackney coach, to Upper Grosvenor Street to the Bishop of Norwich, but he was not within. I spoke to his man, for the hackney coach back and forward paid three shillings sixpence. At twelve Cook and myself took a walk to Westminster Abbey, to the Horse Guards, to the Mall, etc., we dined by ourselves at the Turk's Head. In the evening we went and called at Mr. Strand's, the King's Printer, where Mrs. Prince is, to talk with her about going to Norwich. We lounged about afterwards till supper-time. 
I saw Brereton and Courtney at Coffee House today. April 12th. We breakfast, supped, and slept again at the Coffee House. I went to the Bishop of Norwich this morning, found his lordship at home, Dr. Salter with him, received my letters of institution, and was instituted very soon. His lordship behaved exceedingly handsome and free. Paid his secretary, Mr. Byrne, for the same, four pounds, seventeen shillings, sixpence. Gave his lordship's servant five shillings. The Bishop of Norwich is a short, fat man. We settled with Mrs. Prince this evening about going to Norwich tomorrow morning. We are to go in a post-chaise. April 13th. Cook, myself, Mrs. Prince, and one Mrs. Millard, who has a brother at Norwich, a minor canon, set off this morning early in an hired post-chaise, and four for Norwich over Epping Forest. At the Turk's Head Coffee House, for myself and Cook, paid and gave to servants, etc., three pounds, three shillings. We changed horses and coach at the full-faced stag on Epping Forest, and went on to Harlow, where we were obliged to take chaises. From Harlow we went on to Stansted, where we had some wine and egg and fresh chaises. From Stansted we went on to Bourne Bridge, took fresh chaises, and went on to Newmarket, where we dined, and then went on in fresh chaises to Barton Mills, where we changed again, and then on again to Thetford, where we drank coffee, and then went on to Attleboro, and then on to Norwich, where we got, I thank God, safe and well, about eleven at night. We all supped and spent the evening together at the King's Head. Note. We shall hear of the King's Head constantly hereafter, as the diarist always stayed there when he went into Norwich from Weston. Alas, it is no longer in existence. I searched the marketplace in Norwich for it in vain. In the marketplace, Norwich. It being after ten, when we got to Norwich, we found the city gates shut. We did not get to bed till after two in the morning. From London to Norwich, a hundred and nine miles, and the best of roads I ever traveled. April 14th. We breakfast, dined, supped, and slept at Norwich. We took a walk over the city in the morning, and we both agreed that it was the finest city in England by far. In the center of it is a high hill, and on that a prodigious large old castle, almost perfect, and forms a complete square. Round it is a fine terrace walk which commands the whole city. There are in the city thirty-six noble churches, mostly built with flint, besides many meeting-houses of diverse sorts. A noble river runs almost through the center of the city. The city walls are also very perfect, and all round the city, but where the river is. On the hills round the city stand many windmills, about a dozen to be seen from Castle Mount. We drank tea and coffee in the afternoon with Mr. Millard and his wife, Dr. Salter's daughter, in the lower close. Mrs. Prince and Mr. Millard there also. After tea we got to Quadrille, lost one shilling. Mrs. Millard is a very impolite lady, rather rude. We supped and spent the evening and slept at our inn. Our journey from London to Norwich cost eleven pounds fourteen shillings fourpence, which I paid half of, which I received this afternoon from Mrs. Prince and Mr. Millard's brother, five pounds seventeen shillings. April 15th. We breakfast at our inn at Norwich, and about twelve we set forth for my living at Weston in the chaise. 
at norwich at my inn this morning paid two pounds two shillings chaise etc to weston included we got to weston which is about nine miles from norwich by two o'clock in the afternoon where we dined supped and slept at the parsonage house to turnpike and driver from norwich to weston paid two shillings my curate mr howes came to us in the afternoon bed etc all in readiness for us when we came we carried with us some wine and cider from norwich april sixteenth we breakfast supped and slept at weston parsonage a man and his wife by name dunnell live at the parsonage house and are good kind people we went to church this morning at weston and cook read prayer and preached for mr howes i also administered the high sacrament this morning at weston church being easter day i had near forty communicants in b no money collected at the sacrament it not being usual at weston my clerk is a shocking hand the worst singing i ever heard in a church only the clerk and one man and both intolerably bad mrs howes and her niece mrs davy were at church and they would make us get into their chaise after church and go with them to huckering to mr howes where we dined and spent the afternoon and came back to weston in the evening in mr howes chaise about eight o'clock gave his driver one shilling mr howes is about two miles west of weston cook likes my house and living very much for my part i think it a very good one indeed i sleep in the garret at weston as i would not let cook sleep there but immediately under in the new building which is very good cook is mightily pleased with his scheme i e the whole expedition the diarist and his friend cook remain together at weston till april twenty sixth the time is taken up in viewing the glebe making expeditions interchanging visits with the house transacting on the diarist's part a variety of ecclesiastical business such as being inducted by mr howes taking the oath of abjuration note the oath of abjuration was imposed by the abjuration act of seventeen o two and is a reminder of the jacobite nightmare which haunted the eighteenth century though but feebly in the latter part of it the oath adjuring the descendants of james the second was by the act of seventeen o two made a necessary qualification for every employment in church or state stanhope's the reign of queen anne volume one pages thirty six through thirty seven nineteen o eight edition before the justices at norwich reading the thirty-nine articles in weston church before a crowded congregation and declaring my assent and consent to the liturgy on april twenty sixth they go to norwich for two days see a play one night and the sights of yarmouth the next this last expedition is described as follows april twenty seventh we got up pretty early this morning and at seven o'clock we got into the yarmouth coach to go to yarmouth about twenty-two miles from norwich we breakfast on the road and got to yarmouth about eleven o'clock where we dined and spent the afternoon at the sign of the wrestlers kept by one orton near the market-place we each took a yarmouth coach just big enough for one person and drove down to the port and so upon the sea-coast close to the sea the german ocean out of which i drank we were close to the sea and sometimes the water came up to us it is a sweet beach upon the port we saw the porpoises playing in the german ocean the tide was going out 
We had a very fine day. After we returned from the sea, we went to the church and saw that, and heard, I think, the finest organ I ever did hear. The organist, Mr. Chichley, stone blind, played on it. Between three and four this afternoon we got into the same coach and returned to Norwich about seven o'clock. Yarmouth is a sweet place indeed, the key very fine. For our breakfast on the road this morning paid one shilling sixpence. For our dinner, coaches, etc., at Yarmouth, I paid eleven shillings. The Yarmouth coaches are very droll things indeed. The wheels very low and directly under the seat. The shafts very clumsy and very long and up in the air. A very small matter will overturn them, being so very narrow, and not more than a foot from the ground. For our fare to Yarmouth and back again, each paid eight shillings. Gave the coachman, each of us, one shilling. We supped and spent part of the evening at Mr. Priest's near the marketplace, Norwich, with him, his wife, and Mrs. Davy, who seems to be fond of Mr. Cook. She is a very young widow, but has two children. We returned to our inn about ten o'clock, where we drank a bottle of claret, this being Cook's birthday, for which he paid, and then we went to bed. We were highly pleased with our scheme today. The next day Cook leaves him to go and stay with his brother-in-law, a Captain Uvedale, at Boxmore House, near Needham in Suffolk, where the diarist is to rejoin him in about ten days' time. Meanwhile he returns to Weston and is busy making arrangements for receiving his tithes and letting his glebe. My plan is to ask three in the acre throughout the parish and to let my glebe tithe free for eighteen shillings zero pence ditto. Then there is the evaluation of the late rector's goods and, of course, the appalling question of dilapidations, as great a nightmare in the eighteenth century as today. It is, I think, the gravest possible reflection on ecclesiastical organization in matters financial that some scheme has not been introduced long since to settle, on some reasonable basis, what is a perpetual source of anxiety and dispute. In this case the diarist's valuer, Mr. Frost, a master builder of Norwich, estimates the Weston dilapidations at a hundred and seventy-five pounds two shillings sixpence a very high figure if translated into modern values. There ensues, of course, the inevitable dispute between the diarist and the late rector's widow, who also, of course, is badly off. On May ninth, the diarist joins his friend Cook at Boxmoor, about thirty-seven miles from Norwich. Cook met him and conducted me to Boxmoor House to his brother-in-law's, Captain Samuel Uvedale, who has a most noble house and a very fine estate round the same. I dined, supped, and slept at Captain Uvedale's, with him, his wife, and Mr. Cook. Everything very elegant. Captain Uvedale and Lady behaved exceedingly civil and polite to me, indeed. Very agreeable people. Here he spends a most pleasant week, visiting Ipswich and going out in the Captain's chariot to call on various neighbors and relatives of the Captain's. On Sunday he hears a very indifferent sermon from the curate at Needham, but next day is compensated, as Captain Uvedale, myself, and Cook took a walk to Needham in the evening and smoked a pipe there with a shopkeeper by the name of Marriott, a very hearty man. May 16th. We got up at five o'clock, and at six Cook and myself went in the captain's chariot for Ipswich 
to go in the Ipswich post-coach for London today. The captain was up as soon as us to give orders. We took our leave of Mrs. Uvedale last night. I left in my bedchamber on the table ten shillings sixpence for the captain's chambermaid. We got to Ipswich by seven o'clock, gave the coachman and servant boy ten shillings. For the captain he took a ride a different way. I never met with more civility anywhere than I have done at Captain Uvedale's, his lady very agreeable. At seven this morning we got into Ipswich post-coach for London. He and Cook stay two nights in London at the Turk's Head. On the 18th, whilst walking in St. James Park, the King and Queen, with their guards, went by us in sedan chairs from the Queen's Palace to St. James Palace, there being a levy at St. James today at one o'clock. The King did not look pleasant, but the Queen did. The entry continues. May 18th. In our return back I lost my companion Cook, and therefore I took a walk by myself to Westminster Hall, where I saw the Lord Chancellor presiding in the Court of Chancery, and Lord Mansfield in the King's Bench. Note, the Courts of Chancery and King's Bench were held in Westminster Hall till well into the nineteenth century. Between 1824 and 1827, Sir John Soane built some new law courts at the west end of the hall, which were used till the great buildings in the Strand were completed in 1882. Soane's buildings at Westminster were afterwards demolished. The Lord Chancellor at this time was Lord Bathurst, 1714-94, to his term of office comprising the years 1771-1779. to It has been said that he was the least efficient Lord Chancellor of the last century, and Lord Campbell observed that the building of Apsley House was perhaps the most memorable act in the life of Lord Chancellor Bathurst. The Lord Chief Justice, on the other hand, William Murray, 1st Earl of Mansfield, 1705-1793, to is too eminent and well-known to need a note. For Westminster Hall, see Wheatley and Cunningham, London Past and Present, Volume 3. For Bathurst and Mansfield, the D.N.B. I saw there also Peckham, Head, Caldecott, etc., all in their great wigs and gowns, with a hundred more. In the afternoon we went and saw the exhibition of pictures in the Strand, paid two shillings. From thence we went to Covent Garden Theatre and saw a play, The Merchant of Venice, and for the entertainment, Love a la Mode. The theatre quite full, being Miss Macklin's benefit. None of the royal family there. We sat in the Prince of Wales box, Cook having two tickets, from a Miss Saville, who took the whole box, we each paid five shillings. Many returned, there being no room for them. Mr. Macklin acted Shylock in the play, and very well. Shutter, Quick, and Woodward, capital players also. Love a la mode, author, Mr. Macklin, is a very merry and cheerful entertainment indeed. We separated coming out of the playhouse, and Cook went home by himself and I by myself. I met many fine women, common prostitutes, in my return home, and very impudent indeed. The Turk's head very full after the play. Thorpe, etc., etc., there this evening. Next day they return to Oxford, and so ends this very pleasant six weeks jaunt. June 2nd. Selstone and myself settled our affairs concerning our being masters of the schools for the last year to-day before dinner. 
I had received for Lysatz twelve pounds twelve shillings. Zellstone had received for Lysatz twenty-four pounds six shillings, so that the whole received by both for Lysatz thirty-six pounds eighteen shillings, out of which we deducted for the collectors of Austin's having had forty-one sets in the year at one shilling sixpence each, three pounds one shilling, remaining therefore to be divided thirty-three pounds seventeen shillings, which gave to each of us for Lysatz only sixteen pounds eighteen shillings sixpence. Selstone paid me to make mine equal five pounds seventeen shillings. M.B., we are each to receive besides at Michaelmas from the vice-chancellor five pounds, so that I shall make in the whole for my being master of the schools last year thirty-two pounds eighteen shillings sixpence. Selstone went away pretty full from my room. This statement of the profits made by the diarist as master of the schools would be entirely unintelligible without some account of the university system in the eighteenth century. The following remarks may clear up some obscurities. It is generally admitted that the universities of Oxford and Cambridge do not show at their best in the eighteenth century. Scholars, of course, there were, and not a few of them, whose luster is as bright today as it was then, but the general light was dim. Our good friend Bishop Watson of Ladduff, blaster of rocks in Westmoreland, thus describes his qualifications for the professorship of chemistry at Cambridge, to which he was unanimously elected by the Senate in 1764. At the time this honor was conferred upon me, I knew nothing at all of chemistry, had never read a syllable on the subject, nor seen a single experiment in it. But I was tired with mathematics and natural philosophy, and the vehementissima gloriae cupido stimulated me to try my strength in a new pursuit, and the kindness of the university, it was always kind to me, animated me to very extraordinary exertions. A few years later he was made Regius Professor of Divinity. On being raised to this distinguished office, I immediately applied myself with great eagerness to the study of divinity. In 1748, Lord Chesterfield wrote to his son, What do you think of being Greek professor at one of the universities? It is a very pretty sinecure, and requires very little knowledge, much less than I hope you have already of that language. Lord Eldon said, An examination for a degree at Oxford was a farce in my time. I was examined in Hebrew and history. What is the Hebrew for the place of a skull? said the examiner. Golgotha, I replied. Who founded University College? I answered, King Alfred. Very well, sir, said the examiner. Then you are competent for your degree. This was in 1770. The medieval curriculum, the trivium, which consisted of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium of music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy, had degenerated in the eighteenth century into a system of declamations and disputations thereon. Oxford specialized in the trivial, with the addition of some classics, history, and philosophy, and Cambridge in the quadrivial subjects. The Cambridge system, I speak as a Cambridge man, but the fact is, I think, not disputed, was more efficient in the eighteenth century, 
and certainly mathematics were genuinely studied and real examinations held. If we are to believe Dr. Vicissimus Knox and Lord Eldon, quoted above, who took his M.A. degree in 1779 at Oxford, the examinations for the B.A. and M.A. degrees at that university were mere mockeries. Readers who wish to enjoy a prolonged laugh should read Knox's brilliantly witty description of the Oxford system in his essay on some parts of the discipline in our English universities. Note, Essays Moral and Literary, V. Knox, 1782. According to the university statutes, the Oxford course for the B.A. degree consisted of 1. Disputaciones in Parviso, commonly known as generals, or disputations on three questions in grammar or logic. 2. Answering under a bachelor, that is to say, more disputations upon three questions in grammar, rhetoric, ethics, politics, or logic, a B.A. taking the office of moderator. 3. An examination in grammar, rhetoric, logic, ethics, geometry, Greek, and Latin. The candidate chose his own examiners, three of them, and then got a lisiat for the examination from the proctor or master of the schools. The examination was held privately. The statutory course for the M.A. degree consisted of 1. Determination, i.e., disputations on the trivial subjects, 2. Disputaciones apud Augustinenses, commonly known as Austin's, more disputations, the candidate and the master of schools being alone. The proctor appointed a B.A. as his collector in Austin's, who matched the disputants at his discretion. In the Middle Ages, the Oxford scholars had disputed thus with the Augustinian monks. 3. Disputaciones quadlibeticae, more disputations. 4. Sex solenes lecciones, or proforma dissertations on natural and moral philosophy, commonly known as walls, because no one except possibly a proctor was there to hear, and the candidate addressed the walls. 5. Bine declamaciones, exercises in composition. 6. Examination as for B.A., with a slight variation in the subjects. It was upon the whole of these exercises, and the manner of their execution, that the witty Vicissimus Knox poured, to use his own excellent phrase, the utmost poignancy of ridicule. The declamations in chapel to which the diarist so often refers were required to be held by the college authorities, and were not technically a part of the degree course. In so far as these Latin compositions were the work of the declaiming student himself, they were probably very useful intellectual exercises, and the testimony of the diarist is noteworthy both as to the subject of these declamations and their frequency. It is always easy to criticize and the universities in the eighteenth century undoubtedly expose their flanks to the critic's attack. But it is pertinent to observe that, if that system could be notoriously abused by the lazy, stupid, or unscrupulous student, it at least had this merit, that it left the student who had a brain really worth cultivating to cultivate it himself. At present there is, perhaps, some danger of the frequent lecture system developing into a sort of frenzy, in which lecturer vies with lecturer in pouring information into the student with an eye always on the inevitable examination, 
and rivers of outpoured information are of less value than the smallest spring of knowledge which the student has sought and found himself the career of bishop watson is at once an illustration of the defects and merits of the eighteenth-century university system the frank statements of the bishop already quoted have been used by critics of that system as supporting their case so of course they do but the critics or some of them fail to bring out that in the case of bishop watson better appointments to either chair of chemistry and divinity have seldom been made note mr winstanley in his recent book the university of cambridge in the eighteenth century pages five to six does the bishop less than justice in merely describing him as in many ways a very favorable specimen of an eighteenth-century professor who appears conscientiously to have discharged his duties as a teacher bishop watson's researches in chemistry were of great scientific importance and he was a few years after his appointment to the chair of chemistry at cambridge unanimously elected a fellow of the royal society in seventeen sixty nine as an apologist of christianity he was much respected by gibbon whose animadversions on the christian religion the bishop had vigorously countered few more brilliant or broad-minded men have ever sat upon the episcopal bench and not the least of lord shelburne's good acts was his promotion of dr richard watson to the bishopric of landaff in seventeen eighty two note the studies of the english universities in the eighteenth century christopher wordsworth eighteen seventy seven also social life of the english universities in the eighteenth century by the same author eighteen seventy four the english church in the eighteenth century abbey and overson eighteen seventy eight the church in england from william the third to victoria a h hoare eighteen eighty six anecdotes of the life of richard watson bishop of landaff volume one passim essays moral and literary v knox seventeen eighty two the report of the royal commission on oxford and cambridge the asquith commission nineteen twenty two the university of cambridge in the eighteenth century d a winstanley nineteen twenty two of these authorities i found christopher wordsworth's scholae academicae the most useful for my purposes it is crammed with information for a compendious account of bishop watson's career see the excellent notice in the d n b see also my remarks on the bishop on pages thirty eight and thirty nine june thirteenth a chinese man about twenty-five years of age attended by a multitude of people came to see our college and gardens this morning i was in the garden with him he talks english very well he had on his head a cap like a bell covered with a red feather and tied under his chin a kind of a close coat on his back of pink silk quilted over that a loose gown of pink silk quilted also which came down to his heels and over that a black gauze or crape in imitation of a long cloak a pair of breeches or drawers of pink silk also and quilted and a kind of silk boots of the same color and quilted also and a pair of red morocco slippers his hands were also covered with some thin silk of pink he had a fan tied to a sash before him he was of a moderate stature a tawny complexion black hair tied in a kind of tail 
small eyes short nose no beard in short as to his whole face it was uncommonly ugly not unlike one of the runabout gypsies after prayers i went with acton one of our gent calm to have my profile taken on by a lady who is come to town and who takes of great likenesses i was not above a minute sitting for the same june twenty third this morning about six o'clock it pleased god to take to himself my worthy friend young seymour the son of the dean of wells lord francis seymour whom we met at the deanery some time back and i hope he is now eternally happy in thy kingdom o lord everybody that knew him respected him much and therefore is as greatly lamented by his friends he was an amiable young man indeed and a very good and dutiful son pray god comfort his distressed parents and friends for so great and valuable a loss in him he took his bachelor's degree but thursday sennight june twenty ninth whilst dr wall and self were at the freemason's lodge it was proposed in the senior com room by daubeny and jeffreys and carried by a great majority that mr masters and mr bathurst should not treat this evening for their livings as usual but give five guineas or so to the library or for plate i cannot say but i was much displeased at it in the right there was a great riot in college by the junior people who broke down daubeny's doors and broke jeffrey's windows june thirtieth a complaint being made to the warden of the riot last night in college the deans were summoned to the warden's lodgings this morning to consider of the same but none of the young gentlemen that were concerned in the same not being to be met with the meeting was put off till to-morrow morn next day the meeting was accordingly held the diarist being present as one of the deans and the principal offenders in the affair of the riot were punished by confinement for varying periods and impositions the diarist observes for my part i must own it did not deserve so serious a determination or attention to the same july thirteenth i breakfast dined supped and slept again at college bell one of our fellows was at master's rooms this morning who informed me of the same and i went and saw him walked in the garden with him and had him to my room afterwards and he stayed with me till dinner-time i asked him to dine with us but he would not he asked me to eat a bit of dinner with him at his inn but he did not seem to be fond of my accepting his invitation therefore i declined going with him i parted with him at three he appears to me to be quite cracked-brained and abuses the new testament much but greatly praises the bible and the jews a very strange fellow he is grown quite fat wears a black wig with three curls without any powder in it i have not seen him before as i know for the last ten years july seventeenth at five o'clock this morning went to the cross inn and got into the bath coach for the west a mr crocker of wadham college a mrs tompkins wife of mr tompkins the grocer in the corn market oxford and her little girl by name suki a very pretty little girl about eleven years old were all the passengers mrs tompkins and her little maid are going into cornwall to bodmin to see her sister who married mr pickering formerly a chaplain of new college i knew him we breakfasted at burford dined at sirenchester and drank tea in the afternoon at the cross hands 
and got into bath about eight o'clock in the evening for breakfast dinner and tea in the afternoon i paid eight shillings as i treated mrs tompkins little girl all the way crocker took his leave of us at the cross hands he went from thence for bristol he is a strange genius for the remaining part of the fare he had paid already ten shillings sixpence half fare in advance and luggage paid fourteen shillings gave to the coachman as we had two two shillings i supped and slept at the angel in westgate street bath mrs tompkins and little maid did the same both much tired july eighteenth i breakfasted at the angel with mrs tompkins and daughter after breakfast i took a chaise for ansford mrs tompkins and daughter took another chaise for wells we travelled together so far as old down and then we parted mrs tompkins is a very good kind of woman at bath for supper last night and breakfast i paid six shillings gave to a barber at bath this morning one shilling i took a walk over bath this morning with miss tompkins gave the chambermaid one shilling to the boot-catch and waiter gave one shilling sixpence for my chaise to old down paid ten shillings sixpence to the driver and turnpikes paid two shillings at old down we had a glass of white wine together and then i went in a fresh chaise to ansford and mrs tompkins and daughter for wells for old down chaise to ansford paid ten shillings sixpence to the driver and turnpikes paid two shillings i got to ansford to the old house about three o'clock where i dined supped and slept at the parsonage house i was very glad to find mr pounceset was alive he had been very ill but he is still very bad indeed not able to move at all i am afraid he will not get the better of it but he is much better than he was as they told me my poor sister is as well as can be expected she has a very pretty little maid about two months old the period of nearly three months at ansford which follows is but for one very important episode uneventful brother john continues to cause him anxiety and there is an additional cause of feeling in that the patient diarist having received no rent from brother john for three years in respect of the estate left him by his mother not unnaturally decides that he must seek another tenant mr pounceit recovers from his illness and during convalescence wheels himself about in the garden in a bath-chair one of the kind with a little wheel fitted in to turn by hand i confess i did not realize that this convenient contrivance was as old or older than seventeen seventy five on august twenty fifth a neighbor was tried at wells assizes on the charge of murdering his wife and was condemned to be hung by the judge who did not leave the hall during the whole ten hours of the trial the diarist was summoned as a witness to testify to the prisoner's character but his name being called while he was having some dinner his endurance not equaling the judge's he failed to appear as however he thought the prisoner guilty his absence did not presumably affect the issue the poor wretch protested his innocence to the last he was hung on august twenty eighth the diarist commenting if he is innocent i doubt not he will be amply rewarded if he is not lord be merciful unto his soul we come now to the main episode of this time the conclusion of the diarist's one and only love affair told in a few lines with characteristic brevity august tenth jenny clark returned from devonshire last night betsy white of shepton is to be married in a fortnight 
to a gentleman of Devonshire by name Webster, a man reported to have five hundred pounds per annum, ten thousand pounds in the stocks, beside expectations from his father. He has settled three hundred pounds per annum on Betsy. September 13th. Jenny Clark told me that she was at Shepton Mallet yesterday, and that Miss White was married to Mr. Webster this day, Sennight, the 6th inst. September 16th. Mr. and Mrs. Webster, late Betsy White, came to Sister White's on horseback this morning, and they dined, spent the afternoon there, and returned to Shepton in the evening. I did not go to Mrs. White's today, though much pressed in the afternoon. Brother Hise and myself took a walk in the evening down to Allhampton Field, and in our return back we met Mr. and Mrs. Webster in the turnpike road. Mrs. Webster spoke as usual to me, but I said little to her, being shy, as she has proved herself to me a mere jilt. Lawyer White at Mrs. White's quite drunk this evening. The following are one or two homely and more cheerful entries before the diarist returns to Oxford. September 27th. Gave a poor old man at Rachel Pounsett's by name Curtis, who is now in his ninety-fifth year, and walks strong, sees tolerable, and hears quick, and who has thatched some hayricks this year, though so old, one shilling. September 29th. I breakfast, dined, supped, and slept again at Parsonage. My sister's little maid was publicly christened this morning at Ansford Church. Mrs. Don and Mrs. Pouncet of Cole were her godmothers, and myself the only godfather. Mr. and Mrs. Don, Mr. Guppery, Mrs. Pouncet, Sister White, Sam Pouncet, all dined and spent the afternoon at Parsonage. Frank Woodford christened the little maid, and was asked to dine with us, but he declined. Being godfather, I gave to the midwife five shillings, to the nurse gave five shillings, to the four servants one shilling each gave four shillings. Brother Hise and son Samuel supped, etc., at Parsonage. September 30th. I breakfast, dined, supped, and slept again at Parsonage. I went down to Sister Clark's this morning and made her a visit. She is not at all pleased in being not invited to the christening yesterday. Many more the same. On October 3rd he sets out for Oxford, which he reaches after an uneventful journey next day. On October 26th, we get the first direct reference in the diary to the revolt of the American colonies. I went to the Convocation House and heard an address to His Majesty on American affairs read and unanimously approved of the second time of its being proposed. The first time there were about three non-placets, none the second time. The House was pretty full on the occasion. Lord Shelburne cynically observed about this time that Loyal addresses were indeed many, but the enlistments were as few as the signatures to the addresses were numerous. On the other side of the Atlantic, where the rhetorical capacity of the revolting Americans was even more unlimited, the same phenomenon appeared. Washington complained of the amazing backwardness of his troops to enlist for another year, and in a letter of November 28, 1775, confessed could I have foreseen what I have experienced, and am likely to experience, no consideration upon earth would have induced me to accept this command. There appears to have been more of academic vehemence than profound feeling on both sides, at least during the early days of the conflict. Note, 
Lord Fitzmaurice's Life of Shelburne, Volume 1, pages 479 to 481, Lecky's History of England, Volume 4, page 228, footnote. See also pages 139-140 preceding. October 30th. Very busy again in the audit house, doing the college accounts, from ten till two o'clock. Betting with Cook and boys this morning in the audit house about casting up a sum one, ten shilling sixpence, which they owe me at present. November 7th. Very busy today in preparing things for divinity disputations for my Bachelor of Divinity's degree. Harry Oglander and myself go up very soon. November 11th. At one o'clock, myself and Harry Oglander went into the apoditorium adjoining to the convocation house, and about a quarter after one, the professor of divinity came to the same place, where we were with our master's hoods on, the beadle of divinity, Mr. Walker walking before the divinity professor with his staff from Christchurch. The professor then put on his robes, after which Harry Oglander, the respondent, presented the professor with a copy of the epigrams, reserving another copy for himself. The professor then, with the beadle before him with his staff, and we following him, nudatibus capitibus, note, an obvious slip for nudatis, went all together into the divinity school through that place commonly called the pig market adjoining to the divinity school the professor then went into his proper pulpit the respondent into his which is the left of the professor and the opponent opposite to the respondent the professor then reads the lord's prayer in latin after that the professor desires the respondent to read the epigrams and states upon both questions which being done the professor reads the epigrams and then proposes an argument on the first question and goes through one entire medium to which the respondent answers then the professor bids the opponent read his opponent's speech on the first question then the professor bids the opponent propose an argument on the first question and then begins the disputations between the respondent and opponent which lasted till near three o'clock in the hole the states were about a quarter of an hour each before the professor stopped us the professor then gives his opinion of the whole disputations and then concludes the whole in latin with the grace of our lord etc our first question was an sacra scriptura continiat omnia ad salutem necessaria affirmator our second was An sacra scriptura sit satis perspicua in rebus ad salutem pertinentibus. Affirmator. The professor, Dr. Bentham, behaved very polite and exceedingly civil to us indeed. Note. Edward Bentham, D.D., 1707-1776, made regius professor of divinity at Oxford in 1763. He appears to have been an industrious but unremarkable man. See D.N.B. November 14th, at one o'clock, myself and Harry Oglander went again up into the Divinity School and disputed under the professor as last Saturday, only I was respondent. The questions we went upon today were, An sancti sint invocandi, negatur, an operatio gratiae divine sit irresistibilis, negatur. November 16th. 
very busy in the morning in preparing myself to preach a latin sermon before the university which i intend doing very soon november eighteenth had a letter this evening from my norfolk curate who acquainted me that mrs ridley had had a survey taken on her side concerning dilapidations at weston by a clergyman the rev mr duquesne and a william thompson carpenter at hockering and they did not bring it to more than twenty six pounds nine shillings and be a very wide difference between us indeed the diarist survey came to just over one hundred and seventy five pounds it will be remembered my curate mr howes is very much for mrs ridley on november twentieth he preached his latin sermon before the vice-chancellor in his robes attended with three beetles in st mary's church i wore a gown and cassock and had on my master of arts hood without any tippet to my gown my text was out of the greek testament romans six eighteen my sermon was about half an hour long after sermon i returned to college and drank a dish of tea on november twenty fourth he took his bachelor's degree in divinity paying at the same time a fee of twelve pounds eighteen shillings sixpence for the next day or two he is very bad indeed in the influenza but after dosing himself with brimstone cream of tartar and treacle living very low and going to bed early he rapidly recovers november twenty eighth the warden sent down a note to the junior sea-room to acquaint the young gentlemen that if any of them should make any future noise in the college they would suffer the greatest rigor of the statutes we have of many nights past had very great hallowing etc in the courts what is facetiously called the upright the he blank up lee wharton alcott bingham aubrey and busby the principal gentlemen but lee is far the worst they are called in the university the black guards of new college for their noises in the street i have been disturbed two or three nights lately by their great disturbance in the court the junior com room chimney-piece was pulled down saturday night by the above rioters december eighth jumper cox had a prize of five thousand pounds in the lottery his ticket was drawn yesterday number fifty five thousand four hundred and seventy one note see page eighty nine december ninth had a letter this evening from my curate mr howes and in it a norwich bank bill of the sum of a hundred and fifty pounds being part of money for tithes received for me at weston december nineteenth agreed in the thirteen this morning that the college give to the subscription that is set on foot for the king's troops at boston the sum of twenty-one pounds december twenty-first my fellowship this year was worth eighty pounds including as dean of divinity and other exhibitions ten pounds five shillings december thirty-first sent a letter this afternoon to mrs ridley at greenwich one that will not be relished very cordially doubtless the wretched dilapidations dispute end of section seventeen seventeen seventy five